Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that gives you just one life-affirming page of Talmud each and every day. And my guest today is my dear, dear friend, a person I love and admire so greatly. She's the author of How to Fight Anti-Semitism, which you've already read, and if not, you will very soon. And in my completely objective, unbiased opinion, the single greatest writer for the New York Times. Hello, Barry Weiss. Hi, Lee I miss you so much. I miss you too. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm cooking two curries for dinner. I've become a cook in my quarantine life. (laughs) (laughs) So I could talk about that with you for a very long time, but I want to talk today about something else, which is a piece you had written last week, which was really one of the most powerful pieces I've read throughout this time. The headline is The Men and Women Who Run Toward the Dying. And I want to read just the first couple of paragraphs. Few run toward the dying. Even fewer run toward the contagious. But chaplains do. They minister to the sick before this pandemic turned their hospitals into war zones. And they will do so after this plague subsides, whenever that day comes. Doctors and nurses focus on healing the physical. Chaplains are there for everything else. They are men and women from every religious background and none. Their job is not to convert or to convince people to believe in God. Some don't believe in God themselves. Their job, in the words of the Reverend Kaylin Milazzo, a palliative care chaplain at NYU Langone Medical Center in Manhattan, is to be present with people in their suffering. Theirs is a ministry of presence. So, Barry, it was an amazing, amazing piece, and I thought about it uh, as I read today's page, page 32a, in which uh, we are, I'll read this very, very briefly, The sages taught, one who became ill and tended toward death, they say to him, confess, as all those executed by the courts confess, which sounds really harsh to us, but I think what the rabbis were trying to say is, There comes a moment in which the greatest grace is to help people come to terms with the end. Tell me, tell me Mm. about writing this piece. Tell me about your conversations with these amazing chaplains. Well, thank you so much. First of all, Um, I have always admired the work of hospital chaplains sort of in the way that I admire the work of hospice nurses. They're involved in work that I think for many of us um, civilians frankly, seems almost superhuman. You know, the idea of being with people facing terminal illness in a way forces you to face your own mortality. And I think that's something many of us want to deny. Um, And so one of the things that I was especially struck by in this moment, right, is like the typical place, the chaplain is at the bedside of a patient. They're there holding a person's hand. They're there saying a mishaberach, a prayer for the sick. They're there bringing in Shabbat with them. They're there, you know, another tradition offering the Eucharist. And now in the world of COVID-19, which is a deeply isolating illness, none of that stuff is allowed. Chaplains, because they need to preserve the personal protective equipment like gowns and face shields and masks, say, for doctors and nurses. And so how do they do their work, which is sort of facilitating connection with patients and doctors and patients, and some of them would say a higher power, some of them would say God in a world where not only is touch not allowed, but often eye contact and body language isn't either because a lot of these patients are intubated and can't speak or even unconscious. And I was just blown away by the way that the people that I spoke to, people in hospitals all over the city, are figuring out ways to do that, ways that seem creative is a word, 
There was a woman, Rochelle Zazu, at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, who talked about adapting the bedside memorial to suit the new rules of COVID. So she stands up at the doorway, I could cry thinking about it, at the doorway of a person's room and puts her hands on the door and prays for them. Other chaplains that I spoke to are doing things like FaceTiming families in so they can talk to their loved ones who are sick. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot more that I can say about it. But I should also add that, you know, the person that sort of inspired me to write this story isn't in it at all. And her name is Michal Springer. She's the wife of um, Jonathan Rosen, who maybe some people has, have read his work on, who are listening to, to Liel's podcast. And she's quite an incredible rabbi and has trained many chaplains herself. And I was always struck by the work she had done. And she's really who inspired me to write this story. She's now at New York Presbyterian. And so, first of all, it, it was it was kind of heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time to read because, you know, as, as as you said, one of the chaplains in your piece says, you know, the greatest weapon in my arsenal is a hug and I can't use this right now. But I wonder, as you spoke to these incredible men and women of faith and of no faith, did they give you a sense of what it was like to sit down with someone knowing that this very well may be the end and give them not just, you know, a, a moment of temporary comfort, but something that's more like solace, something that's more like preparation for departure? Well, it was interesting. A lot of the people I talked to, I would say, a lot of the Christians I spoke to had a real sense of um, making sure that people weren't dying alone, and that being a major theme, and talking about, you know, how this is the season of Lent, and Lent is about being present with people in the ashes, being present with people in their suffering and making sure that they're not alone. That was sort of a theme echoed. And then Rabbi Kara Tov, who said some really powerful things in this piece, you know, she was, she had a different take. She said, everyone dies alone. What she thinks is hardest about this illness and the reason that she thinks so many of us are, are fixated on the fact that people are alone in hospitals and dying alone is that it's actually a mirror of what we ourselves are experiencing, we, the healthy and the living, which is our own loneliness and our own fear of death. A lot of the work that they do, I think, is about caring for families and making sure that families know that their loved ones aren't isolated or alone, even though there's no visitors allowed in the hospital. And the thing that I found most moving is that almost to a person, even when families, you know, I talked to chaplains who had to convey the worst possible news that a family could ever hear, which is that a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a grandparent died, that they were always expressing incredible gratitude to the doctors and the nurses and the chaplains. And to a person, everyone I talked to for the story, when I had to ask, you know, to, you know, a sort of obvious question, but is anything about the past few weeks and facing down this pandemic shaken their faith? And not a single person said that it had. The page goes on today to, I think, bookend what we were just discussing by saying, These are a person's advocates, repentance and good deeds. I can't think of a better deed, a more important deed, a more honorable and righteous and inspiring deed right now than what these chaplains are doing. And I am immensely grateful to you for telling their story so incredibly well. Thank you so much, Liel. I, I want to add one more thing that just occurred to me. Can I? Sure, of course. Um, there was a, I have this book of Joseph Telushkin's book of Jewish wisdom in quarantine with me or isolation or whatever we're calling it. And there's a story, I'm pretty sure it's a Talmudic story, but you can correct me. And it talks about 
how there's actually a lot of stories and maybe maybe you understand the reason about Rabbi Kiva's students being sick. I think there was like a plague during his lifetime. Yes, there was. was probably, yes. And it talks about how a student was sick and none of the sages or none of the rabbis went to visit him. Um, but Rabbi Kiva did and he got better. And the lesson of the story, I, I might be butchering this, but I don't think I am, is basically like those who don't visit the sick, it's as if they shed blood themselves. And I think that, you know, that struck me as um, true and especially true in a moment where, yeah, hold on. I just found it. I got it. I think it's from Nedarim. This is maybe a gloss of it. One of Rabbi Kiva's disciples fell sick and the sages did not visit him. So Rabbi Kiva himself visited him. And because he arranged to have the floor swept and washed, the sick man recovered. The sick man said to Rabbi Kiva, you have revived me. And Rabbi Kiva went out and taught, he who does not visit the sick is like a shedder of blood. And I think what that asks of us is in a moment where it's not possible, given this disease at this moment, for us to visit the sick, what are the ways that we can be bringing comfort and healing to them? And I, I can think of no better example than, than what these chaplains are doing. Amen, Sela. Barry Weiss, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, Liel. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafiomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>